Welcome back to Cannonballs. It's time for part two of the Lolita podcast, where we talk about books that are part of the Cannonball trip. This week, it's Lolita. We did part one last week. You can listen to that in our feed. Um, Lolita, complex and strange. So I'm here. I'm Gemma Kaneko. I'm here with Ben Cosman. Hi, Gemma. Uh, we don't have a guest for this book because we thought that maybe we should just keep it in-house. Yeah, we were uh, sympathetic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something like that. Uh, so just to catch you up on what happens in Lolita Part 2, um, our characters are pretty much the same. Let me, let me give you a quick rundown of ho- who those people are. Uh, Humbert Humbert is weird European pervert. Mm-hmm. His, the person he pervs on is Lolita, a.k.a. Dolores Hayes. Um, in the second part of the book, other people who are important are Claire Quilty, a playwright. Uh, Vivian Darkbloom, sort of important, also a playwright. And um, assorted friends. Assorted friends of mm-hmm. the uh, of, of Lolita's, other children, etc. Yeah, other school children come in. Yes, those are mo- that's mostly who's important in the second part. Um, so what happens in part two is uh, the Great American Road Trip for a second. Well, a road trip. I don't yeah, know if it's a yeah. Great American. Well, road I mean, trip. it is in the sense like what I think is so. Well, I'll talk about this a little bit later. Um, do you want to do the plot summary? Or do you want me to do it? You can do it. I did it last time. All right. So, um, in part two of the book, Lolita and Humbert go on this, like, let's evade the police and also see America road trip, and they just have sex everywhere, which is disgusting and horrifying. Um, eventually, Humbert decides he's going to teach at a women's school, girls' school, so he teaches there. Lolita goes to the school. He gets really paranoid about all the people she should or shouldn't be talking to and all the friends, and he's, like, really anxious that she's not that she's gonna like hang out with boys alone and she, he's, he's afraid yeah. that she's gonna get a boyfriend yeah basically. he's afraid that she's gonna get a real boyfriend or that she's gonna confide in, confide in someone about what their actual relationship is uh she's in a play that's called the enchanted hunters which is the same name as the hotel where he had sex with her for the first time which was definitely rape just to clear that up mm-hmm. um he that makes him feel all kinds of weird feelings he thinks he knows who the playwright is but he can't quite place who it is playwright is claire quilty who's also kind of a weird perv Definitely. Um, definitely, like, also kind of competing for Lolita's affections. He's also an adult man. Um, and the son of the dentist from the first yes. part of this book? Yes, And also someone who Lolita had 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 a crush on earlier before. But anyway, so she's in this play. He thinks that that's taught her to be deceitful. Eventually, she escapes from him or is kidnapped from right, him. Right, because he, they, yes. they go on another road trip. Yes, because he's trying to keep her away from people. But the point is, eventually, she gets away from him. Um, and he is really sad. And he starts dating someone else and is shitty about that whatever mm-hmm. but he he like really has to think a lot about his relationship with this with lolita and like what that has meant to him for his entire life um he eventually gets word from her that she's now married to somebody this guy named to Dick, richard schiller and that she's pregnant and she needs money uh and he goes to see her and finds her to be like this faded strange adult but he still realizes that he does love her even after that um, and then he has a lot of feelings about who did what wrong. And eventually he goes to Claire Quilty's house and shoots Claire Quilty a whole bunch of times while Claire Quilty is trying to, like, defend himself with a defense of essentially art. Uh, mm-hmm. The end. The end of Lolita. Yeah? Yeah. It was... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, long, long pause. Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we can get into it. It's The second half was not... I didn't know what I had no idea what to expect. And I think we talked about this last time. I had no idea what yeah. to expect the second half because I basically thought what the first half was where Humbert Humbert basically, you know, kills. I mean, he doesn't actually murder 
uh, Lolita's mom. Although we don't know because it's all from Humbert's perspective. We talked about this last time. Right. Basically these were he her, does, she does accuse him of murdering her mom. Right. Lolita yeah. accuses, yeah. or she sort of, she doesn't, yeah, it's an accusal, but she sort of takes it as fact and she sort of throws off, tosses off these offhand comments that yeah. Humbert is a murderer and her mother was murdered and things like that. Um, but the part one ends with they had sex. They have sex for the first time. Yeah, uh, Humbert rapes her for the first time. Yeah, and I thought that was the entire book. I thought I was like, once we got there, I said, now, now what? Right. Um, and it is. It's the uh, disgusting road trip where Humbert I, and he sort of Nabokov mentions casually. There's like one reference to it being year long, mm-hmm. and that surprised me in the beginning when I first read that line because I didn't think it was that long. But yeah, for a year, I guess. They go on this road trip from hotel to hotel, and Humbert, you know, um, while he's, you know, it's a road trip where he has kidnapped a 12-year-old girl as his personal, like, sex slave. Yeah. And he refers to her as a concubine multiple times. Yeah. Um, but then also, at the same time, he is just chronicling, um, like, the trivialities and the mundanity of, like, roadside America. Yeah. When I said Great American Road Trip, it's because I feel like it does actually have a great deal in common with a road trip novel. Like, they observe things that they find unique or interesting about the U.S. and various hotel, whatever. Lolita's super bored. She's basically a teen on the road trip. Humbert refers to her as a, quote, most exasperating brat. Yeah, she just is like a child. She's a child. Yeah. 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 He, he has this weird disconnect where he hates her for being a child, and that, that he hates how child, childish she is, but that's also the only reason he's attracted to her. Yeah. Well, because, like, he gets mad later on when he buys her a bike, and he, like, tries to teach her to appreciate art, but she doesn't care about it. She's just, like, not interested. And he essentially wants her to have to have thoughts exactly the way he has thoughts, and she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. she, she is growing up into sort of her own person, whatever that kind of person is. Like, can't help but be shaped by him, but also, like, doesn't like a lot of the things that he likes. Um yeah, he he says at one point on page uh, 150, well, 156 of my edition, that mentally I found her to be a disgustingly conventional little girl. And it's like, yeah, no shit. Like, yeah. I, what yeah, did you imagine you were going to get here? Yeah, there are moments in Humbert's narrative, because ostensibly we're, we're still reading his memoir. Yeah. Um, that And at the end he says he doesn't want it published until after Lolita is dead. We find out in the beginning of the foreword that Lolita has died in childbirth. Um, but... He, yeah, there are moments where Humbert is writing, and he basically, he sort of, it's, they're not tell, I don't know how to describe them, where he just, like, acknowledges, like, what he's doing is, like, to a child. Yeah, I mean, I think he does acknowledge by the end of this book that he did steal her childhood from mm-hmm. her and sort of ruin her life. Um, like, what I, what I do think is interesting is he kind of says that it is his fault and that he does deserve to be punished for it, but the only thing that he really deserves to be punished for is ruining Lolita's life and not killing Claire Quilty. Right. I don't think he feels any guilt for that. Yeah. Um, and... Claire Quilty is I, also a creepy person. Right. I also so. don't know if I... I also don't know if I am mad at Humbert for killing Claire Quilty. Right. Because, I mean, like... I don't think it redeems him in any way. Right. And I think that's what Humbert is trying to do at the end. Yeah. Um... But that all, yeah, it also seems like an afterthought. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the, so that's a question I have for you is, uh, like, how much agency does Lolita have in this book? Because she does get away from him. Right. But she gets away with him with another man. And it does seem like that's what she does in the second half of the book is just, like, she knows what she can trade on and that is always, like, some other old creep. Right. Basically. She, she basically becomes what Humbert 
I don't want to say Humbert makes her, but Humbert... I also want to say Humbert corrupts her, but, like, I mean, it's emotional, like, trauma and abuse, and she's clearly suffering from PTSD or something like that. Yeah. And, yeah, she, you know, well, there was one point, I think when she is older, when Humbert goes back, she's 17 at this point, pregnant, married to Dick Schiller, uh, Humbert goes to see her, and she, and she's telling him what happened after she runs away with Claire Quilty, and I believe the way she frames it is that she wanted to, that she was in, quote, in love with Claire Quilty at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that I strikes me as an act of agency. But, but then clearly it's that he didn't have any interest in... Quilty didn't have any interest in Alita, really. It, he, he was trying. I think it was almost... They were just trying to make child pornography. Sort of Pretty much, yeah. Um, and then when she realized it was different... So Humbert was only obsessed with Alita, where Quilty was just obsessed with children. Yes. And so when Lolita realized that, then that's when she ran away from Quilty. Mm-hmm. And it was also much shorter. It was only, it wasn't that long. They, right. They were at just like one place. They didn't go on a long road trip. Um, so I think at some point she does come up with agency. And, and at the end, where she is, you know, ostensibly, you know, getting money and moving with her husband to Alaska as far away from the trauma of her child as possible. But at the same time, we're only getting... This is, I think I touched upon this in the first, our first episode on this, is that it's hard to ascribe agency to any other character because everything is so specifically through Humbert's narrative and Humbert's perspective. Right. And he doesn't, I don't think he ascribes any agency to anyone. He doesn't see any of these characters as real people, um, even at the end. You don't um, think that's changed for him at the end at all? No. And I, I wanted, I wanted to talk about this and we, I'll, t- I'll talk about it because I wrote it in, to me it's a very telling quote, um, because it is, it's in the middle of when he is... Te- like admitting finally that he ruined Lita's childhood, he you know destroyed her. She was not a she wanted all she wanted was a normal childhood, and um, he didn't. And he stole that from her, and he um, was a monster and all, all that. But he says, um, uh, "It does not matter a jot that a North American girl child named Dolores Hayes had been deprived of her childhood by a maniac, unless this can be proven." I see nothing for the treatment of my misery but the melancholy and very palliative of uh, and local and very local palliative of articulate art. And what's what bothered me about that sentence is that he refers to her as they're like the very scientific North American girl child, mm-hmm. where it's still she's not a person to him. She's just like this scientific thing. Like he is just naming this fact in like an encyclopedia. And to me, that mm-hmm. still implies a disconnect from Lolita as a person. I mean, I think he has a disconnect in the second half, but I think to me his disconnect, like, the changes in character. Like, in the first part, nobody is real to him. In the Mm -hmm. second part, he does acknowledge that he took something from her, that he, like, did steal her childhood. And then, to me, the distance he puts in seems to me to be distancing himself from himself as opposed to distancing himself from other characters. Oh, like, Like, it's like the... The trick in the first part where you would switch to third person? Yeah. Like, he's not... He, he like, even still at the end, he says, like, the thing that he did that was bad was steal Alita's childhood, and it was not killing Claire Quilty, which, like, sure. But that he he's, like, he's still offering, like, some degree. He, like, does think that there are things that can make up for the things that he's done. So I think at, in the second half, he's trying to shield his own brain from guilt as opposed to, like... So, like, the reasons he has for objectifying people is di- are different. Yeah. And I think at the, and at the end, the, and this is most, 
most of these revelations come after he see after he meets Lolita when she's seventeen and pregnant. Yeah. Um, after she he visits them at their house. Um, and he says at one point uh, he's talking in his mind to Lolita and he says, "I loved you," and I don't think so because immediately before that he says he's reflecting on a moment. I believe it's during their first road trip, and he's reflecting on it now, years later. And it says, he says, it struck me that I simply did not know a thing about my darling's mind. Uh-huh. And so to me, that he's just admitting that he didn't really know, ever know Lolita. He only knew what he wanted to know Lolita, uh, what he wanted to know about Lolita, and that was that she was a nymphette in his mind. Well, like, okay. So when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about pretty much all of the Western canon literature when men are in love with women. And I would think that there is a, just, like, a, a general great deal of objectification in all of that literature. Like, d- despite most books, I mean, thankfully, not being about, like, pervy old men and the young women that they're trying to have sex with. Um, but that I do think that when he says, it struck me that I never knew her mind, that's already more acknowledgement than you're going to get in, like, 95% of the Western canon of men and their relationships with literary women. So, I, like... I do think that he attempts to, like, he, he, he acknowledges this in himself, which is already more humanizing than I think happens for a lot of men in, the, in these not kinds of novels. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, that is a, tr- it's a troublingly low bar. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, like, I don't want to give, particularly because he also says at one point, like, I was waiting for that, like, and it's, it does seem a little bit like personal growth. For a pedophile um, and a pervert, and you almost not sympathize with him, but you're like, yeah, you you sort of see him sort of developing as a human being. But then also, I have I I wrote down a ton of quotes from this scene, <laughs> this section because it it's honestly, I mean, the most emotionally real of the whole book, I think. Uh-huh. Um, but he says he's like when he's walking away to his car, he and he writes about like he he writes like. Oh, and then this is where I pulled out the gun out and put it to my head and blew my brains out. And uh-huh. This is no, just kidding. Quote: It never occurred to me. It never occurred for me to do that. Um, that being kill himself because I think he's still a narcissistic sociopath. Oh, I mean, I, I agree. I do think he's deeply narcissistic, and he also seems to think that the fact that he wrote a book that Unsolved has it. yeah, well, that yeah. he has. I mean, he still thinks he should be punished, but he also basically says like, all I can really do for you because I like, can't give you back your life is like I'm trying to write this beautiful something something. Like it doesn't. It's a memoir, fictionally, whatever. Like, he's basically saying the fact that I made something that has artistic merit is sort of worth all of this, right? Right. But I think he also knows that it's not, which is what's interesting to me, because when he kills Claire Quilty, Quilty is like, I will give you all these things, like, that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna play, like, word games with you, I'm gonna spin my own artistic web, and he's like, nah, you're still a terrible person and I should shoot you. So to me, it's like he knows. He knows that what he's doing is has all been wrong this entire time. Like I actually just, well, okay, maybe Humbert doesn't know, but Navikov knows and is presenting us that in that contract, that contrast on purpose. Like is, is the art worth it? Mm-hmm. And I, I think we're supposed to realize that it's not and that Humbert is in fact this narcissistic sociopath who believes these things. But that's the point of the book overall. Like, why does Lolita exist? Like, that's wrapped up in it somewhere. So at, at the end, when Humbert is killing Quilty, uh-huh. why do you think he's killing Quilty? Do you think it is to, in, it to def, 
quote defend Lolita's honor? Like because is he killing Quilty because Quilty abused Lolita, or is he killing Quilty because Quilty stole Lolita from him? I think he's killing Quilty because Quilty abused Lolita, but he's also killing Quilty because he is Quilty and he doesn't actually want to kill himself. Right. I think it's more the latter. I think. <laughs> yeah. No. I. That's the worry. I don't know if I got to the point where. I still think Humbert was killed Quilty and hunting Quilty just because he still had this rage from losing Alita. I mean, I, and it's weird to me because I think he knew he acknowledges early on that he's going to lose Alita to time either yeah. way. But I think it's still just pure rage. He can't. He already lost Alita. I don't it think years. it's pure rage. I actually don't think it's pure rage because I think that the way he even writes about it elevates it beyond that. Like maybe it is him tricking himself. But I do think if it was just, like, violent animal rage, like, you took something that belonged to me, like, I mean, maybe it's just because I don't want to think that, but then, like, this, there, there's, like, no point in any of the things that he says for the rest of the book, like, saying I would have loved her no matter what, like, I don't I think he ever that, loved her. Okay, sure, but he thinks he did, and he also has the idea that he might, that, like, once she got older, he actually still would have loved her. Like, he does kind of think that. Right, and even, I mean, he does, yeah, he asks her to leave her husband and yeah. live with him. But I, at the same time, also I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that he, when he sees her pregnant and way back when he first kidnapped her, he hatches this idea of getting Lolita pregnant just to spawn more Lolitas. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think Humbert ever really changes. I think it's rage. Cause he writes, cause he's really drunk when he kills Quilty. Yeah. He writes about it and you know, it's Humbert is writing this in jail. So it's written very well, but this, the way the scene is described, he's, you know, drunk on gin, he can't fire the gun, really. He has to fire all these bullets just to even hit Quilty. Uh-huh. Uh, they struggle, they wrestle over the gun because he keeps losing it. Um, which I actually... I mean, it's also a comical scene because it's, yeah. it's like this bungling... These two bungling, you know, artists trying to kill each yeah. other. Yeah, old pervs. Um, I don't... Yeah, I think... Every time I... I Every time Humbert writes as if he loves Alita and sort of is redeeming himself at the end, or not even redeeming, but like sort of growing a little bit at the end, uh, I th- I can think of defenses or reasons why that's not true. Well, I don't think that Humbert is like a redemptive figure. Like, I don't think that right. there's a point where you're like, oh, surprise, he was the good guy. <laughs> like, that's never a thing that right, happens. Right. It's, yeah, we're, it's, yeah, we're speaking in degrees here, I guess, yeah. where he becomes a little less monstrous. Yeah. And I, I feel like, well, I think that the second half does twist it a little bit in terms of, like, a lot of it is just projection, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he should be penalized, but he doesn't think he should. And everything he's doing is to try to, like, make excuses for his own actions in this life, which is why it's hard for me to say it's pure rage. I think that part of it is, like, if I did this, would that mean I was a less bad person? As opposed to, like, you just stole you something think, from you me. Think that, that yeah. You think that. I, so I, I don't do think, think he so. acknowledges to some degree that he has done things that are wrong and bad. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I don't think... I don't think the... I don't think him hunting down Quilty... I don't think he saw it as an act of redemption. I think he just saw it as Lolita is gone. She's going off with, she's moving to Alaska. He doesn't have anything else to live for. He wants this one last final act because he's still, when Lolita left him, he lost his life. Like he, I mean, his whole life, when he, when he kidnaps Lolita, basically that's like, that's it. He realizes like, if Lolita is my only life now, yeah. if I ever lose her, I have nothing else. Yeah. So I think he's just still dealing with that when he goes to kill Quilty. I mean, yeah, I don't disagree, but I also think that he has elevated the act in his own mind, which is why he doesn't think he actually deserves any sort of punishment for it. I I think, yeah, 
I don't know. I think I don't know if that's more just you. I think it's projecting onto his audience, saying you can't you can't blame me for killing this guy because he's a pervert, right? Which I guess might be what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, I think that we at least still agree in the end that Humbert Humbert is just that what he believes is redemptive, which is the fact that he wrote this piece of literature about Lolita, fictionally, again, reminder, this is not really a real thing, Um, that for some, in in the end, he's essentially saying that art is enough. Like, all of the bad things that he did is, like, he's giving her immortality. He can't give her back her childhood, but he can give her that. Like, what do you think about that idea? What do I think about that idea? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's clearly... I don't even think Humber believes it. Like, I don't believe it, and I don't think Humber believes uh-huh. it. Because, ostensibly, he's, you know, Quilty makes that same argument to him, and he kills Quilty. Um, no, I mean, I think... And I think he... Again, there, there are all these, like, almost asides. They're very throwaway lines, where he basically acknowledges that, oh, you know, Lolita cried herself to sleep every night, and I saw it. Right. But yet I continued... Right. Raping her. Right. Um... He acknowledges that he stole her childhood. He acknowledges her that she's, you know, never going to be the same or, like, never going to be normal again. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't... Yeah, I I was struggling with this because he sets himself up as basically it's Humbert Humbert is the poet, Claire Coulty is the playwright. Right. And I was trying to think, yeah, what is... I mean, he's not even... Because what? He... So Humbert writes... Quilty's confession as a poem for Quilty to read at the end. Yes. It's not even a very good poem. No, it's not actually a very good poem. And, like, I mean, besides what we're reading, Humbert is never good at poems. Like, we see a couple poems, and they're never good poems, right? Right. Well, but that's what you said earlier, is that, like, Lolita is his life. Right. Right? So, the way that he writes about Lolita... I mean, the first sentence of this novel is one of the most famous opening sentences in all of literature because it is, like, a beautifully written sentence. Like, just reading it is poetic, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, yeah, I guess everything he writes that's not directly about Lolita is pretty trash. Yeah. Yeah. I... Yeah. I don't... No, I don't think... No, I mean, it's clearly not worth it. He destroys, you know... He destroys a girl's life. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess we can say that, like, no art is worth it. Right. But if you can't undestroy somebody's life... Now, if the act is already done? Yeah. Does it... It's the only immortality we may share. That's what he says no, at the be, end. No, yeah, but you're still, you're immoralizing, you know, the worst thing that ever happened to her. What else could happen? Like, what... Nothing. If, I don't think I mean, look, like, to... in this fiction, like, what does that mean, that that's how this ends? Like, what does that, what does that say? What is, what is that, like, how does that wrap up the book for you? To me, it's Humbert trying to live with himself. Okay. Even though, I don't remember, does he kill himself in jail? We learn that he dies in jail. Yeah. I don't think he kills himself. Yeah, I don't himself. think he kills himself. I don't think, yeah, again, I don't think Humbert, I think he loves himself too much to kill yeah, himself. Yeah, he loves and himself I don't, a lot. I don't yeah. think, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't have any, he doesn't have the empathy to kill himself. Yeah. Um, because I don't think for him, if he kills himself, the world stops. And it, I mean, it it's a, I mean, yeah. Like, he, does, he can't imagine a world going on without him. Yeah. Um, and that's why I think he is so astonished when he finds Lolita married to Dick Schiller. Right. 
in that in any way that a person could conduct their lives without him being a part right. of it. And yeah. I, yeah, I think he even says something to that effect. Yeah. But I mean, I think that moment does alert him to the fact, finally, that Lolita is a person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I, I, I was interested in the idea where he writes that he didn't want the book we're reading published until after Lolita died. Um, because he didn't want, I guess he didn't want her to have to relive what he did to her. Right. Because I think, yeah, I, I don't, I think the only thing that he thinks the book is doing, I think is he's trying to convince himself that what he did didn't destroy Lolita. But he knows it did. Yeah. I think he's trying to convince himself that what he did was awful and terrible, but at least one good thing came out of it, which is some really great sentences. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe. Okay, so then my question is, like, overall, this book as a whole, it exists. Mm -hmm. It is a huge part of the Western literary canon. So, why? Can I can I read Nabokov himself? Yeah. Because so, so my edition, which is the Everyman edition, has a uh, and it's like an afterword by Nabokov, uh, written a couple years after it was published, and he basically writes. He, I mean, he starts. Uh, teachers of literature are apt to think of such problems as what is the author's purpose or still worse what is this guy trying to say uh, and he basically says nothing like those are stupid questions don't ask uh -huh. those questions uh, but he, started, he he gets to a point at the end he goes through a bunch and he writes about how it was hard to find publishers and no one wanted to publish it um, and, uh, and he says there are three there are three topics that American publishers uh, won't, uh. won't are taboo as far as American publishers are concerned. Oh, yeah, this must have um, been in the first time I read this because my current edition doesn't have it, but I wrote it down. Yeah, marriage between uh, whites and African-Americans. Where everything goes really well. Uh, yeah, and then an atheist who lives happy and useful life and dies and is asleep at the age of 106. Yeah. And then also pedophilia. Yep. Um, uh, but then he says, uh, this is Nabokov, he says, there are gentle souls who would pronounce Lolita meaningless because it does not teach them anything. I am neither a reader nor a writer of didactic fiction, and, despite John Ray's assertion, John Ray is the person who wrote the foreword in the uh -huh. beginning, Lolita has no moral in tow. For me, a work of fiction exists only insofar as it affords me what I shall bluntly call aesthetic bliss. That is a sense of being somehow, somewhere, connected with other states of being where art is the norm. There are not many such books. All the rest is either topical trash or what some call the literature of ideas, which very often is topical trash coming in huge blocks of plaster that are carefully transmitted from age to age until somebody comes along with a hammer and takes a good crack at Balzac, at Gorky, at Mann. So he's basically saying there is no moral. He, there, he didn't write this for a point. Yeah, but, like, moral and point is different. Like, what we, which we discussed in the first half of writing this is that, like, we knew it wasn't a didactic piece of fiction. The moral was not pedophilia is bad. We already knew that. We already right. discussed that. Like that was it then the book would have ended after part one and Hubbard Hubbard would have fallen off a bridge or something like right like that, that that's not the thing but also he can say I wrote this with no point in mind but that's bullshit like nobody no artist does anything without attempting to achieve an effect right he didn't right? write you don't write like yeah because if you want if you're writing only for pretty sentences you write like Gertrude Stein's tender buttons yeah yeah you write poetry right just write poems and even then if you're writing poetry you still are achieving an effect from your reader and you're describing an instance and a time and a point so like Sure, fine. I'm not, like, trying to get your Aesop's Fable moral from this. Or, like, it's not Little Women. We're not saying, like, hard work makes people happy. Humbert does try to get Lolita read Little Women. Yeah. I thought that was I a... Go f well. Yeah. Um, so, when I say, like, why do we read this book, what I want to know is what did you get out of it? Like, to you, when you analyze and think about this piece of fiction, like, why? What does it do? 
what does it make you feel, et cetera, et cetera. I went to art school. It's really hard to be my friend. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I struggled with that reading this entire book because I didn't, because I think it's hard. I think Nabokov is sort of, I almost want to agree with him because it is real hard. And what it made me think of, I'll be honest, and there's another part of this afterward where he, um, he says some readers make the charge that this book is anti-American. <laughs> and that was interesting to me because the book I thought of, A, at first I thought about Catching the Rye. And uh-huh. we talked about this a little bit, yeah. where Humbert is, you know, uh, and Holden, you know, the idea of preserving youth. But during part two, I only, I really thought about The Great Gatsby. Really? Yeah. Uh, and this is, again, this is going to be Freshman 101, let it, Freshman Light 101, bear with me. But the way the way Great Gatsby is sort of about the unachievable American dream, how it destroys people, uh-huh. um, and you know the American idea of uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ambition. Uh-huh. Uh, I almost get that with Humbert Humbert, where he has this one thing that he wants more than anything else. He gets it, destroys it, and then it leaves him, and it destroy that destroys him. Uh huh. I don't know. I haven't put that together yet, what that means. Okay. But I kept thinking about The Great Gatsby when I read part two of this book. That's interesting. And that so and then when Humbert talked about it being, or when Nabokov talked about it being anti-American, I kind of saw that. I mean, you also have the European coming into America and sort yeah. of corrupting youth, which is sort of obvious. Hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought it was the corrupting influence of ambition and like wanting things. Interesting. Interesting. And how you destroy what you want. And okay. what you ostensibly, you know, because Humbert says he loves Alita. I don't think he actually does love Alita. Right. But to Humbert, he loves Alita. And he destroys Alita. So this this entire thing made me think about literary love in a lot of ways. Um, especially in the Western canon, since Western canon, Western canon is, like, mostly written by men. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was thinking about it and, like, thinking about it, thinking about it. It's like, I can't really think of that many examples where it's not the same dynamic as Lolita. Like, sure, it's not an old pedophile, but it is still a man and an object, essentially. Like, the women are almost never people. And it's, it's what you just described, too, is he gets something and destroys something, mm-hmm. and it actually has nothing to do with how what kind of a person Lolita is. And in fact, it does rely on, like, Let's think about the poetry of these feelings and moments and ideas, which if Nabokov is, if we're reading his afterward correctly, what he's saying is like, it ultimately doesn't matter to me what anybody thinks about pedophilia. What matters is that we got to understand, we could got to plumb these feelings and what would happen in these situations, which is of interest to us simply because it's so foreign Mm -hmm. to our own lives. Um, and we can explore depths of emotion and find beautiful phrases that would not arise in other situations because they are not these situations. And sure, that's an exciting and interesting dramatic exercise. But it's also, like, such a dude fucking thing to do, you know, is that ultimately all of these novels that I'm just thinking about in my time and of having read a lot of classics, like relatively large number – is it's like, what if a man was sad? Mm -hmm. And what if these different things made him sad in different ways? And isn't that on its own interesting? Isn't that on its own worthy of exploration? And that, and I think, like, in terms of Nabokov, too, and, like, the kind of person he was, like, often described as, like, this art monster kind of person, right? Like, who just 
only had to only like thought about this and like never had to put his feet on the real ground of being alive because his wife Vera would like do all of this shit for him, right? So like that is my reaction to this. Is if if like we like to think about it as pure decadence, just like indulging in language for the sake of language and picking a situation that is guaranteed to elicit the most baroque and like rococo emotions that can exist but at the same time being grounded in literature like yeah sure it exists purely for aesthetic purposes but it exists to me also in like an extremely masculine sphere of those things yeah i'd agree with that i mean you i if you if we wanted to give nabokov more credit uh-huh we i could see an argument that what he's doing is showing how hollow those you know the relationship you're talking about in the western canon Uh sort of man falls in love with object right i think you know the lolita shows how hollow those emotions are because humbert doesn't love lolita he doesn't have any idea of her as a person it's only what lolita does to for humbert as an idea yeah which is this idea of a nymphette yeah so I think, you know, maybe Nabokov is writing this as a critique of all those other male-female relationships in literature. Saying, oh, that's interesting. Like, you're, yeah, like, this is, you know, what you said in the beginning. Um, like, it does, like, it's no different than other, than any other relationship. Like, all, you know, I can't think of a good example. Well, I mean, you can do Jay Gatsby and Daisy. Yeah. Like, this is no different than pedophilia, because... You're you're just seeing this woman as an object, uh, a fuel for your ambition. Sort of, you only see her through uh, what she does for you, what she means when you get her, why, like your want for her. It's it's all internal. It's all all narcissism. It's no empathy. I guess I could probably be won over to that reading, but it's hard for me to think that way, having read others of his novels, but also just, like, purely within Lolita, like, the character that we are meant to walk alongside the entire time is Humbert Humbert. Like, there's nothing within the text that indicates that Lolita might actually have a separate life. Right. Um, And that kind of indictment, it just seems really... Un- unlikely it's giving him a lot of credit to me yeah it yeah. is giving him a lot of credit but also because I, like the the idea that like there were just need to be a lot more clues pointing that pointing at that yeah me. i mean i sort of got that with the throwaway lines that i keep mentioning where he you know you do are reminded every once in a while lolita is suffering while this is happening right because humbert humbert ignores her suffering yeah and i think you know you know most female suffering is ignored in the Western canon. Yeah. So that could be... I could I could read that... I could... You could read Lolita as a critique. Like, all... I mean, it's what? Like, I can't... What is the... the you know, second wave feminism, all sex is rape. Yeah. Um, like, all relationships are Humbert and Lolita. I mean, I think that's a fascinating interpretation of it. Uh... I don't know how much of that could, like, ultimately be super supported by the text. Right. But I'm pretty into that as an idea. I mean, that's... Yeah. I think that is the most generous reading. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, also, you know, you know, you have Nabokov's aesthetic purposes, but also just an interest, like, an exercise in fiction or an exercise in perspective. Just, like, can I write a whole book from the perspective of a pedophile? Because you're right. Like, n- nobody knows... I mean, unless you're a pedophile, you don't know what a pedophile thinks like. Right. So it's just an... You know, an exercise in 
literary talent, I guess. Yeah. Beyond well, just even the sentence structure. Yeah, I mean, I think that he is right in his own afterward when he says it's to, like, live other lives and experience right. this other kind of perspective on the world. Like, that's for sure what's happening here. And we can take him at face value for that. But then if he also says, like, oh, but this doesn't mean anything, that to me is like, oh, so this and this is as worth exploring as anything else is worth exploring. Right. Um, which Nabokov himself and what I know about him is the strongest critique against your theory that all relationships in the Western canon are Humbert and Lolita, which is something I really like. And it's just like growing on me the more we talk <laughs> about it. Like, I, even when we look back at other things that we've read, right? Yeah. Like, well, so the next thing we're going to read, I think, is very contrary to that, which is, which is fun and interesting. But, like, we look at Bleak House, or really most of Dickens. Like, a lot of those women are just, like, icons. Mm-hmm. They're just, like, icons that are made of stained glass that you can take down and put on your shelf. Ada and Bleak House, I yeah. don't have, I can't think of a personality descriptor for her, besides pretty. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. And even Esther, like, even though she has a lot of the narration in the book, like, she's ultimately, like, a good and dutiful person, mm-hmm. and the only person in Bleak House that we really see acting against type of gender is Mrs. Jellybee, and she sucks. Right. Like, it's, like, roundly... <laughs> and Dickens wants us to know she sucks. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, I, I, that is that is kind of a fascinating idea, that it is pointing to a lot of Western literature as as uh, love affairs between men and objects. Though I, I remember I was like, when I was reading Proust a long time ago, I was like, this is crazy. Like no man has ever felt this way about women. This is bullshit. And then I was like, oh, right. Because Albertine is actually a dude named Albert that Marcel Proust really liked, which is why it was easier for him to humanize her, quote unquote her, because it was a man that he was in love with. And he believes that men can have feelings and not women. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, so maybe the lesson of Luda is men are bad? That's the lesson of everything, Ben. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I mean, there is no lesson. I do think I, that's true. Yeah. But it is up to you how you want to interpret it as a part of the canon that we engage with still to this I day. I will say this is the most one of the most challenging books I've read in a long time. That's good. And I'm when I started it, I was... I, I don't know if I'm glad I read it. Oh, really? I mean, I, I think I am at the end. Okay. Because this conversation, this has been a good conversation. Yeah, I think so. This has been interesting. Yes. Um, and you know, it sort of re- it sort of makes me feel better when I'm reading on the train, and everyone just thinks I'm a pervert. <laughs> well, your copy is actually very subtle. It is. Yeah, I, I, it's really beautiful. It's the Everyman Library Edition. I love Everyman. Um, this is not even an ad. I just love Everyman. Uh, <laughs> but they're usually cloth bound, and they have the gilt title and a ribbon which comes mm-hmm. in them, and it's just nice. I've read a lot of my early Thomas Hardy and Everyman, and I and I really enjoyed it. Modern editions have the sideways pair of lips, uh. so I feel like, I mean, that's the one that I read, which uh, has, like, the smile, but then it's flipped on its side, which is much more suggestive. Yeah. However, it's way less creepy if you're a woman reading that in public, yes. I would say. Also, um, a man taking notes while reading Lolita. <laughs> Can't do that. <laughs> I was on an Amtrak train uh, but no one, no, no one would know what that was right. unless they were really close I think to you. The guy sitting next to me, I think, moved slightly further away from me. Whatever. <laughs> Uh, well, okay, so we're wrapping this one up. It was, it was, I, I still like Nabokov and really enjoy all of this writing. Um, so let's just, uh, finish up with some of our favorite lines. Right, because if, if Nabokov, if what he says is, you know, true, and he just wrote this to, uh, explore the English language, I think this was one of his first books that he wrote entirely in English. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and he basically says he just, um, you know, wrote it as an exercise in the English language. And to be honest, there are some kick-ass sentences in this book. Yeah, there really are. Uh, and really, like, what killed me, what I was not expecting, is that there were some really just funny jokes <laughs> that made me 
Like, it made me... I felt bad laughing. But they're, like, totally... And, like, these jokes, on the, like, I want to be clear, are completely unrelated to any pedophilia. Uh-huh. Good. Um, like, he has a joke in the in the first half um, where he's talking about blackmail, and he says, well, not quite blackmail, more like mauve mail. Which I just, <laughs> it's just a funny joke. That's pretty Also, the joke. color mauve... After that, the color mauve came up a bunch in this book. Um, but do you have a do you have a favorite sentence? I have to pick one. Do you have one that I have a uh, couple? Okay, go for it. I have well. So one of my f- first favorite jokes, just stupid wordplay, is that we had breakfast in the township of Soda Pop one one thousand one, like Soda Population one thousand one, but Soda Pop. I like it. I thought it was funny. funny. I laughed. I said it's that's funny. stupid. That's stupid and funny. Um, but then no, I have. I really love so when after their year long road trip, uh, they move. Humbert and Lolita move to the town of Beardsley, where Lolita goes to a, I think, a Catholic girls' school, and then, um, uh, and then Humbert starts uh, teaching at one of the classes. But oh, I mean, this is we could spend another ten minutes. I won't. We won't. We don't have to go into this. But like, just Humbert's contempt for everyday Americans in this book. Oh yeah, he like, thinks just, that they're all dumb. And they're awful. all yeah. yeah. But anyway, so this there's a section where he's talking about his neighbors, basically. And he says, uh, uh, my West Door neighbor, who might have been a businessman or a college teacher or both, would speak to me once in a while as he barbered some late garden blooms or watered his car or, at a later date, defrosted his driveway. And then in parentheses, I don't mind if these are, verbs are all wrong. <laughs> I just love this. I just thought that was really funny. And the idea of uh, watering someone, like watering your car or barbering some late garden blooms is just... Great, just I mean, fun wordplay. It's just yeah, funny. I his just, disdain is like clever. evident, and it's really funny. Yeah. He's like, I don't, I don't care about these verbs. <laughs> I don't, I don't. I'm not going to waste time thinking about what you guys do in your in houses, your, your stupid your domesticity. Lives. Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, when I read this the first time, because these are my notes, like my sentences that I wrote down the first time I read this, which was in, um, it would have been in probably like 2000, maybe 11. Mm, I wow. read this. Maybe two, maybe 2013. Uh, 2012. Actually, that seems more likely 2012. Right in, right in the middle. Uh, yeah, so uh, I this is just things that I think are pretty, like pretty sentences. So when they're on the road trip, he says, I have never seen such smooth, amiable roads as those that now radiated before us across the crazy quilt of the 48 states. Voraciously, we consumed those long highways. In rapt silence, we glided over those glossy black dance floors. It's just really evocative. Like, I am a big fan of the Great American Road Trip novel, and I do think that he was paying homage to some of these ideas, even though it's in the most perverse way possible. Mm. I do, I admire Nabokov's commitment to alliteration in this book. Yes. I, uh, you, I often, you often don't see it so obvious. Um, this was, I just, like, this just made me laugh, I remember, when I read it, um... When they get to the the hotel for the first time, um, he says, From a big crowded place called the Hunter's Hall came a sound of many voices discursing on horticulture or eternity. (laughs) One or the other. Horticulture, eternity, meh, you know. Same, same, same. Um, but my, my last one I think is actually really interesting because we could also talk about this for forever and ever and ever, but he essentially is asking us to do for him what he has been doing for other characters in his life for the most of the book, which is, uh, please reader, no matter your exasperation with the tender hearted, morbidly sensitive, infinitely circumspect tone of my book, do not skip these essential pages. Imagine me. I shall not exist if you do not imagine me. Try to discern the... Oh, can't read this. Try to discern something in me. Trembling in the forest of my own iniquity. Let's even smile a little. Like, 
he spends this entire book essentially imagining all of the other people in his life. And now we have to do that for him. Like, he doesn't exist outside of us. And I think that's fascinating, too, and interesting. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we've talked, we talked about this in the first uh, episode of this, and how we're, we don't know if what he's writing is true. Right. Like, we don't know if it's actually happened, so. Yeah. That's I why I wrote that. American Psycho in my notes, which I'm really not going to go into now, but, like, that's a whole thing with that book, the Brady Sinellis book, which is an annoying book to read on the subway also because people will talk to you and it's also awful. But one of the big questions about that book is like, it did anything that is described in the book actually ever happen yeah. at all? Uh, so that's, that's like that's another a question for Lolita. Yeah. That's a question for Lolita. Hmm. Imagine me, make me the same kind of concept. I would, I would really rather not. <laughs> it's too late. We read it. We did. Uh, that was Lolita. We had to imagine it. Maybe you know, don't, because we did this podcast for you, so you don't have to read it. Uh, but for the next two episodes, we are going to read the big one, one of the big ones. We're going to start Pride and Prejudice yeah. by Jane Austen. A good a good counter to this book. A I good think. counter. A book where women have quite a bit of agency, actually, yes. and people react to each other. Um, I read this quote recently on Twitter that this woman has said, like, she wrote this romance novel, and she was like, when I was writing The, the, the Perfect Guy, I thought, what would a man do in real life? And then I wrote the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that a lot of the uh, the love for Mr. Darcy is sort of in that camp. So we will be reading Pride and Prejudice, um, An Impossible Man, An Awesome Lady, uh, and a book by a woman. Thank you, God. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we'll see you then. Good episode. That was good. We had a pretty pretty solid conversation about yeah. that, I think. <laughs>